Hi, you're listening to Rizzo, and prepare to be baptized in glitter. You know, to write a novel, you have to maintain your belief in, a slightly delusional belief in the realness of this invented world that takes you years to finish writing about. And it's always been really important to me to go as quickly as possible from sleep and dreams into this invented world, which is a way of preserving its realness for me, a kind of almost a kind of cultivated delusion. And if I let the world get in before I get to writing on any given day, the world is so convincingly real. I always have got to start by saying this is made possible by my Patreon family, the Riz fam, the Rizinators. If you like this or me or the radical act of joy bursting through the time-space continuum, come and check it out. Join us, join us at patreon.com slash Love. This conversation was recorded in August 2020. I was in Woodstock, New York, and Michael was in Provincetown, Massachusetts. We were still finding our footing in the new Zoom boom and challenged by internet speeds, so there are just a few moments where his audio is subpar, but most of it's good. Hi, this is Rizzo with one Z, but I'm not wearing a onesie today. I'm wearing separates. Thank you for inviting me into your Eustachian tubes. This feels so intimate. You're listening to Baptized in Glitter, the podcast. I met the novelist and screenwriter Michael Cunningham a decade ago in the middle of nowhere. It was an unlikely spot. It was in the Appalachian Mountains. We were both visiting a radical fairy outpost, a queer commune in the woods, there to celebrate Beltane and throw off heteronormative shackles to revel in the beginning of the summer, neo-pagan style. I have a sweet spot for any place that promises drag in the woods, honey. High camp combined with dirty camping. High camp and camping. (laughs) These are a few of my favorite things. Michael is tall, handsome, and charming with salt and pepper hair confirming his silver fox status. He has been an out gay man for all of his professional career and also a foot soldier in the fight against AIDS as an early member of ACT UP. That day, we were all getting gussied up for the Maypole Circle. He quietly confessed to me that he was out of his depths with any sort of drag and could I possibly help? I knew he was a novelist and I'd heard his name, but I had not yet read the work he's most known for, the book which in 1999 not only won the Penn Faulkner Award, but also nabbed the coveted Pulitzer Prize. The Hours then went on to become an Oscar-winning film starring three of the most heralded actresses of our times, and two of them are redheads, which makes it even more impressive. As I was smudging up his eyes that day with the navy eyeliner, we founded a mini crackpot philosopher's club in the corner, and our friendship did not end that day in our little utopia. We kept in touch back in the real-life hustle and bustle of New York, sharing emails and even partaking in wild debaucherous social experiments that can only be tested in the likes of the city. Our bond was further strengthened when, in tandem, both of our long marriages went on pause. 
I needed a place to crash in between tours, and Michael generously invited me to share his East Village apartment for a while. We were both traveling a good deal, or if we were in the city, we were out and about and working at night or at shows, at parties, a life that now feels very strangely distant with this 2020 reality. But occasionally there on Avenue B, we'd have a night at home and share Chinese takeout, have a sip of some scotch I'd brought back from Edinburgh, and we'd have he'd have one smoke out the window, just one cigarette, he'd always say, as we lay down our specious generalities over the East River. In addition to his books and screenplays, Michael teaches creative writing at Yale. He was raised in Pasadena, California, but is a longtime New Yorker. He lives in Brooklyn with his husband, Kenny. I am so happy to share this conversation that I had with Michael Cunningham. Where are you exactly? One of the dwellings on this compound. Apparently there's a sex ghost here. Oh, really? Yeah. You know... I don't get, I just get the occasional <laughs> mournful shriek and bump in the night. I know that, please give that coach my address. You, do you want me to give him your, your, your I digits? Do. I do, I do, I do. You're going to get sex from a ghost, sex ghost. <laughs> yeah, wherever, baby, wherever you can get it these days, right? What's the, what's the scene on the, is there a scene on the Provincetown streets, like a sexy scene, or is it in masks and bars are open here? Uh, it, the town is packed with tourists. Restaurants are open inside, and people are sitting in tables next to each other. There's no rules against that. Not here. Wow. So Massachusetts has very different rules than New York. Well, and Provincetown has some different rules from Massachusetts. Provincetown is like its own little country, which in many ways is fabulous. I mean, who wouldn't rather live in a, in a, in a country where the citizens actually prefer eccentricity to normalcy? They don't just tolerate it. They'd rather. It's built into their core ethical values as a town. I actually think it reflects the, the shape of the landmass. It's a corkscrew. So yes, yes, I I pledge allegiance to the nation of Provincetown, but um, it's freaking me out right now. Mm. Yeah, um, it's full of people. You know, we try to be understanding of all human acts. People have been cooped up a, a long, long time, and they've come to Provincetown to walk the streets, but. Um, I'm not walking the streets with him. Mm, right. Kenny and I live like a pair of lighthouse keepers in a, a little house on the periphery. Does it make you feel old at all? Or like the or or like the conservative I feel those damn kids is on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> oh, those damn kids have been on the tip of my tongue since about nineteen eighty-three. But I'm not I keep, I, keep, I keep knocking it back down my own throat. You know, I, I guess this is something an old guy would say. At this particular very 
difficult, dark time in history. Irresponsible behavior is irresponsible behavior. And if you are 22 and unconcerned about the risk you're taking, you have to think about other people. You have to, you know, do you have parents anywhere near? Do you do you know anyone else? I really don't think this is about old versus young. I don't think this is this is cool about cool versus conservative. It's a pandemic. It's highly contagious. The United States is 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 the horror of the world in terms of our numbers. We are winning. We're winning. Winning the contest we least want to, to win. And believe me, I feel old in so many ways. I am actually old. It's not just an illusion, but I don't think this is about that. Mm. This is about conscientious behavior. This is about the actual ability to think outside of your own reality. <laughs> To think outside of your own reality and and your and your own well being. You are one of my closest friends that was that was actually involved in ACT UP and deep in um, a pandemic before this. Yeah. Even though it was a pandemic um, that circled around a very specific group of gay men. And and did not inspire nearly the the flurry of international search for for a vaccine, did it? No, absolutely not. If only it was only gay people and and IV drug users. Right. How do you compare? Are there have there been moments that have come up for you in comparison? Sure, sure. I mean, for for those of us who were around for what started as the AIDS epidemic and then became the AIDS pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. There is a sense of deja vu all over again. But even at the height of the AIDS pandemic, you could hug your best friend. Yes. You could hug your best friend who had AIDS. Right. And you could say goodbye to them. You could hold their hand. What are you drinking? Oh, I'm having, you know, I'm having just, I'm just having a, a little tiny bit of tequila on the run. Oh, I'm having tequila too. Oh, John, cheers. Cheers. Tequila and kombucha and some juice. Mm. Mine is just with tequila on the rocks. Mm, it's, yes. It's unsophisticated, but effective. And, and you are the perfect excuse for me to have a drink at this hour of the day, which I- I know that's really what I'm just offering. Yeah, thank you. It's really an excuse for me to drink at four o'clock and wear something that makes me feel like slightly less bedridden. <laughs> I know. I was, I was talking to an actor um, the other day who had just finished shooting a movie and she said, you know, the main reason I took this part was so that I could smoke. I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. The character smoked. And she said, I haven't smoked for years. I have children. I can't. 
but really, really, I wasn't even that keen on the part. I just thought, but I can smoke. That's amazing. I would completely take a part to kiss someone. God, yeah. <laughs> like a specific person, the right person. I have had to kiss someone I don't want to kiss before in a show. Oh, oh. See, that's the difference between being in show business and being a novelist. We're, we're never asked to kiss anyone we don't want to kiss. Because my experience in this area is limited. So say you have to, yes, convincingly kiss yeah. an actor, I'm assuming an actor, mm -hmm. who you don't feel that way about. We're like, where does that, where do you pull that out of? I feel like one of my superpowers actually is to find likable things about almost anyone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It feeds into my philosophy of life as flirtation. Life is flirtation and that flirtation is not, I want to fuck you. Flirtation is, I see you and I like what I see. Yeah. So I flirt with... 90-year-old men, 90-year-old women. I flirt with plants sometimes. Cats. No, I am a total equal opportunity flirtationist. My definition of flirtation is mm -hmm. any way in which you, you assure another person that they are every bit as attractive, cool, funny, smart as they hope they are. Mm. And that's why we love flirtation. Not, right. it's not, it's not the same as coming on to somebody. It's not stalking. It's not anything more than a, a, a lovely little gift you can give to somebody by which you say, Oh honey, it's hard for all of us. And I just want to tell you, even if it might not technically be true that you are as fabulous as you hope to be, Mm. Nice thing to do for anybody, right? Oh, God, yes. That makes me think of this incredible Maya Angelou quote that stays with me. Glamour is profound. Glamour is saying to myself that I am as beautiful and fantastic as I hope to be first to myself and then anyone else wise enough to see it. That's so good. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but... Can the art of flirtation be turned back on the self? I think so. You should flirt with yourself. Yes. Auto flirtation, absolutely. Auto flirtation. That's, I do flirt with my... And, and it's funny because I sometimes sexually objectify myself, too. Is that just the root of homosexual uh, in me? No, it's not the root of the sexual in you. Um, I think it was John Moreau who said... Oh. People are either sexual or they are not sexual. Homo or hetero is beside the point. Ooh, who said that? John Moreau. Oh, That's good, yes. isn't it? You are sexual. So you are good. And I have to say, as I age, I'm much less interested in people who are not sexual. By sexual, I think I mean people who are in their bodies. Yes, in who, their bodies. Who bring something palpable into the room with them. Right. Which can take many, many forms. That there's something visceral. And, you know, I have long been aware of and sort of thrilled by, how to put this, um, the power we all have to register as sexy. It's so, walking into that proverbial room and having an effect on it has so much to do with, as Maya Angelou put it, 
how you feel. And if you walk in, even, even if the basic equipment does not in any particular way match the standard, if you walk in and say, get a load of this, people tend to buy it. I've been working that one for about 50 years. It doesn't always work, but it sometimes does. When was the first time you realized that you were, I guess, sexy or a sexual being or attractive to others? Wow, wow. That is such a good question. I mean, you know, it's not like I I still have, there's days when when it feels more and days when it feels less, Um, but high school. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I have this image of you in high school from the stories you've told me. Um, because you still told me a lot of stories because we're we're close friends. Yeah. We should say that. Um, that lived together. I have this image of you as a high school prom king, Pasadena. I'm gonna give you the very short version. Um I sort of went into high school, you know, as this sort of short, fat nerdy kid and summer between sophomore and junior year i sort of fell in with this crew of cool boys i was the the funny smart one and no one who no one wanted to have sex with um (laughs) and then i somehow i'm still i'm still mystified by this after all these years um (laughs) i can't believe i got in i got this really hot girlfriend We'll call her Carol. Code name Carol. Um, it was it was a fluke. I mean, I guess she left me for my mind or something. But I'm sure this is just coincidence. It's biology. You're 15, turning 16. But that summer, when I was suddenly Carol's boyfriend and I had a crew of guys to hang out with, I. I grew like four inches and my skin cleared up and the shape of my face changed. And I came back to school in Pasadena, California, um, a safe space for white people, looking so different that I think a lot of people, other students, just assumed that somebody named Michael Cunningham had moved away and somebody with that same name had moved to town because they, I, I, you were the new guy. I was a new guy. I was a new guy. Um, you know, which was of course fun. Yeah. And sad. And, and, but also weird, also weird. You know, it, it, it was, it was an early look at how much difference the package makes. And that wasn't entirely good news to me at 16, but really, really, really now, now I count. Mm. I'm the same person mm. who you didn't talk to. Your your high school experience was a teen movie, basically. And it's 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 forthcoming from Paramount Pictures. <laughs> I just want that montage where you like take off your glasses, pull down the ponytail. What about you? When did you start? When did you first feel sexual? I grew up around dancers. My second mother was a dance teacher, modern dance teacher, and I was around other girls who were so much more traditionally beautiful than I was and were mm-hmm. dancers that would go on to become dancers. Yet and I was I was the dancer that made everybody laugh before they crossed the floor you know, or I would sing to them before. Um, So I can move, but uh, did not have that natural grace and 
in inborn elegance that some some children are are blessed with. And I always felt a little bit more masculine, not like a tomboy because I was not athletic, but that I was audacious and bold like boys were. I really quickly uh, identified with the funny, quirky, smart um, kind of best friend. And I'm so grateful because it meant I flowered later there's that double-edged sword where I didn't develop any confidence around who I was based on my looks. And, and then yet that's a long thing to yeah. undo when you have doubts about your attractiveness. But it wasn't until college, actually until my sophomore year of college, when I heard that the lesbians in the freshman class had decided that I was like the goddess of the school, like, there was like a trio of them <laughs> had decided that I was um, very, very hot. And Major. it was almost as if uh, something within me illuminated and I realized my own power. Yeah. 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 And realized my own true identity. Yeah. Um, and I'm grateful for it because. I've basically built a career off of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I feel like it's time for a specious generality, don't you? Um, yes. I, you know, I, I think it's, it may be better if, if you're not the queen of the prom from the get-go. Yes. It may be one of those perverse blessings that doesn't look anything like a blessing when you're, say, 13. But you know, maybe not so bad to have to have had, let's say, a walk on the unwild side. Yes. So that you actually have firsthand experience of what it's like to be the one not chosen, the one not admired, the one mm. not desired. And then mm. if if some goddess is looking out for you, then you then you get on the tilt whirl and you get that part. Did you actually have like love making with Carol? Oh, yeah, like oh yeah we did. Oh how lucky. Yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. There was this oh I don't know if I tell you this really poignant moment. Um we had driven up into the, the San Gabriel Mountains behind Pasadena, which is where people go to kids go to get stoned and, and, and have sex. And um, afterwards, she got really emotional. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, do you hate me? And I said, well, I probably a little bit. You know? <laughs> 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 I mean, probably why the sex is so good. And she said, you know, I get it about, she was all those things, like being a cheerleader, being queen, she wasn't yet queen of the prom, but you know, she, she said, I get it about how false that is, mm. and I can't seem to give it up. Do you hate me for that? Wow, what a deep conversation. And I, I not only said, no, I don't, I kind of think, um, I don't know. I mean, the mystery of why she would go out with me in the first place when, when better looking boys were lined up around the block was she may have unconsciously 
wanted to get to a car parked up in the mountains behind Pasadena with some boy who would say that to her. Mm-hmm. Who knows? And to be able to ask that question. Yeah, to someone, somebody, yeah exactly. Somebody you could ask that question and who you knew would answer, no, I don't hate you. Do you feel any pressure with the hours being your coup de grace, um, your hit? I wouldn't say pressure because I'm not going to write that book again. Mm. Sure. There are, there are times when I'm a novelist, no, you know, I'm not a famous person, but a novelist. Um, I like that you make that differentiation. <laughs> oh, you know, really every now and then when, your interest in novelists, people actually say, are you a famous novelist? People actually ask you that. What? And, and my standard retort is there's no such thing as a famous novelist. If somebody does say, wow, wow, I love your work, the odds are they're talking about the hours. Mm. And the odds of medium good that they've never, they haven't read anything else. Mm. Um, and, you know, I can get a little like indignant about it, but I just sort of slap my, I do an auto slap. We can auto flirt. We can also auto slap and say, you know, look, people are still, some people are still talking about a book you wrote 25 years ago. Shut Mm -hmm. up and be grateful for that. That doesn't happen to many books or many writers. So Hallelujah. I don't want it to seem like I'm going to be so evolved as to say, ah, 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 well, now I, now I just write unconcerned about, about ever having another big hit like that. Of course I think about it. But um, Did you expect? No. Was there any no. moment after writing no, that? No, no, no. No false modesty. No prevarication here. I turned it in to my publisher and said, I promise I will write a book that will sell after this. It, let's just say it did not have international bestseller written all over it. It's a book about about three depressed, you know, suicidal women. Um, let's just say I did. I yeah, and I'm thrilled that it struck the chord that it did. And you know, it's also um, I think it's true for anybody. There's a chain of events that has to happen. Like the book comes out. It wins the Pulitzer Prize, in part because it, it's mm. a good book, no question. But there are other good books. Um, yes. The particular jury that year picked my book. Another jury right. another book. But that gets a Pulitzer sticker on it, which gets it to the, the airport bookstore in Honolulu, Hawaii, where Scott Rudin picks it up, attracted by the sticker, calls me up, says, I want to option it. I say, okay. And then... The movie not only gets made, but is good. And then the book is this kind of perennial hit. But all that shit had to happen. Right. Now, and now it's going to be an opera. It's going to be an opera? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they just announced the Times. Assuming the Met has a 2022 season, it's going to be the, with Renee Fleming. Oh, my God. Amazing. Right? That's incredible. When did you read Mrs. Dalloway? Was it in high school? I read it in high school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And didn't understand it, but um, I'd never read language like that. Mm. I'd never seen sentences like that. Um, 
if you're a musician, maybe it's the first time you heard Beethoven or, you know, the, your, your, your first your first exposure to what can be done with language, music, paint, whatever, whatever it is. And it was my first one. It was my first glimpse of actual genius, actual genius summoned using only ink, paper, and the words in the dictionary. Oh, yes. The things about writing is no physical prowess is required or special tools. All the essential elements are available to everybody. Everyone who can read and write. Yeah. Yes. It's it's an important distinction. And can afford ink and paper. It's something I, I, I like to try to pass along to, I guess, younger artists, certainly younger writers, anybody who is trying to produce something and feeling stuck and stalled and far away from publishing or Carnegie Hall or wherever it is. It feels like Jupiter from where you're standing. Um, It does happen. Mm. And you know this. For the people to whom it does happen, it can seem like, well, they just were fine all along. They're not like me. That's so not true. Everybody I know who have been successful, I've had periods, sometimes long periods of thinking, what am I doing? Mm. I'm not good at this. I'm wasting my time. And so much of it. Marilyn Monroe once said, I wasn't the prettiest. I wasn't the most talented. I just wanted it more than anybody else, which I think is good advice to cellists and and novelists and all kinds of people. Though I do believe that sometimes ambition, and we, we mentioned Elizabeth Gilbert, she wrote in her book, Big Magic, really eloquently on on this this differentiation between passion and curiosity. That um, the over-identification with the idea that that passion is what has to fuel you, and passion is fickle. And that curiosity is like the that long term relationship that will that will carry you through the dark days when there's just you and the paper and the ink is not coming. Yeah, there's a kind of collective romance about passion, mm. which you need to have. But oh, honey, every every goddamn day, not likely. A lot of it is just showing up and doing whatever you can. Which I have to say, I have experienced firsthand living with you and watching you. And it Mm, has impressed mm, me so greatly. The commitment, the daily commitment, the weekly commitment. For one thing, it's what I do. Mm -hmm. I like it some days better than others. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's also a a slightly funny kind of work in in that um, a day's work is three or four hours maybe five, but then the circuits are burnt out. So, you know, if I, if I say that I work six days, if we count up the hours, it's still probably, it's not really a 40 hour week. It's nothing like the number of hours somebody puts in in a, in a butterball turkey processing plant. I, I do like to play silver lining plague books, silver lining plague book. You know, what, what are some other, what are some things that have come out of this moment in history is unparalleled in our time for you? Um, You know, I hear this from a lot of people who are privileged and lucky enough to be 
safe and not have to report for work in a butterball turkey processing plant. Um, a certain simplicity. Mm. They can be challenging sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, I sometimes go down what I call a three o'clock rabbit hole. Mm. Where I'm kind of done working and I don't know what in the hell to do next. Mm. Um, but over that is you know a series of days that feel sufficient, though they are a quarter less full than my pre-pandemic days. I have a stronger sense of who really matters urgently to me, mm -hmm. even if we don't speak or see it, because it's hard. But I had no doubt about this, but you are one of the people who matters urgently to me. You are one of the people whose life on the planet I'm acutely aware of. Mm -hmm. There are a number of people I don't feel that way about. Friends who I just, I, I've kind of released. No hard feelings, darlings. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm battening down. There's just not enough bandwidth to... There's not enough bandwidth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's beautiful yeah. to have this kind of intimacy, the kind of intimacy that I feel with you. Um, that is so true, even if two or three months passes without a phone call. You've always had a bit of a practice of that. Like, I love your birthday practice. Of you, You've often said to me around your birthday that you have a moment where you reflect on who this year and that it is a changing thing because potentially you could meet your kismet new life buddy yeah it's kind of my own annual census mm. and just as you say every birthday dinner that i give for myself my friends i look around and think these are the people who matter most to me right now mm -hmm. how does that seem and it always seems great what about this long difficult experience is is kind of nourishing it is incredible to spend delicious time with my family that is not punctuated with packing bags. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I traveled mm -hmm. so much. It's, I love traveling. I love that my work has to do with traveling. I love performing. But the time spent standing still, sitting down, going inside, I have an incredible sense of FOMO and always have. What if that was the dinner where th something happened? That was the dinner where Donatella's, you know, teeth fell out. <laughs> I can't miss that. Then I could tell that story to my friends that matter the whole rest of my life. Even when I was not traveling, I was interrupting my life with, with, going and doing and seeing the shiny thing. And here we are in a period, there is no shiny, the shiny thing is us. Yes. The shiny thing is Kenny and me making dinner. Oh, right. Reading. FOMO be gone. FOMO be gone? I, there is profundity in this stew. Right, right, right. I'm just not thinking about what's going on out there. Yes. With my friends, but they're home too. Right, right, because nobody's doing anything. I have been able to make some real leaps and bounds in both my spiritual practice, um, meaning just actually meditating um, mm. uh, at least four times a week, which is huge. I have a new relationship with writing mm. um, because I have 
been able to connect my mornings to writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've always done that. Oh, I, I get up and first thing. Yeah, and then and then the rest of it starts. You know, to write a novel, you have to maintain your belief in a slightly delusional belief in the realness of this invented world that takes you years to finish writing about. And it's always been really important to me to go as quickly as possible from sleep and dreams into this invented world, which is a way of preserving its realness for me, a kind of almost a kind of cultivated delusion. And if I let the world get in before I get to writing on any given day, the world is so convincingly real, so much itself, so corporeal and physical and made of you know, atoms and molecules that I can go back to my work after too much Congress in the world and look at it and think, well, I'm just making this Right. Up. It seems inconsequential, yeah. especially when you compare it to, yeah, the wonders of a grocery store. A grocery store or a dry cleaner or any, anything that real. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes I'll go to a drugstore and I'll experience it like a museum. Oh, I know. I could just spend hours in the aisles, like looking at each product. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I feel the same. Drugstores in particular, maybe it's the way they smell, but yeah. Actually, in the East Village, like on the way home from t- when we lived together on Avenue. Mm-hmm. I would stop sometimes after a show at that big DVS. And then I don't know if it's yeah. like the theme song. And some, I'm always looking for the thing that takes me from the high of experience of performance and that weird uh, artificial explosion of atomic energy to then the reality of the bed and sometimes and i've tried a lot of different things drugs sex baths um but sometimes late night drugstore is the way oh i get it i totally get it just like looking at all the different kind the brands of (laughs) band-aids there's so many all about about healing and beauty oh the healing and beauty hours spent 1 a.m. in Astor Place. Okay, now I feel like it's time for a crackpot theory. Yeah. Um, and this may not, I, I'm just going to, this is not a fully, even a fully formed crackpot theory, but you know, we have a, our friend um, Billy Huff. Yeah, yeah. Musician. Um, Incredible, and, energetic musician, piano man. Charismatic, kind of great. Um, I, I I feel like my performer friends, maybe musicians, people who do something public the way you do, Billy does, um, seem to attract a lot of envy. Mm. More so than people who do other creative things. I see it. He has a lot of admiration. And he also gets a lot of shit. Hmm. And from other performers or from from anyone? No, not not at all as far as I know. There seems to be something specifically maybe it's about you're an you're in the audience therefore unknown to the person who you feel you know so well. Um I've seen it happen, but there's a sense from people who are in that I should be doing that. 
I should be there. Does that make any sense? It's funny. I don't think about people being envious of me very often. That sounds like false humility. It's hard for me to imagine that. But I think about who I'm envious of and who I've been envious of in the past. I think that same, like that triangle of energy, there's a natural imbalance to the power dynamic, right? When you said the cultivated delusion, like I, I do want a t-shirt that says like, I'm living in a cultivated delusion. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll order them. Okay, good. Because okay. mine has always been, it's a, if I live a fine line between craft and insanity. And oh. the insanity is... I'm going to speak in a room and you all be quiet. I'm the only one who's allowed to talk. Right, right. I've made these rules and you will come willingly. And not only that, you will pay money to come and sit quietly. And sit quietly, except for when I want you to make noise. And then you better make noise or I'll single you out. And I will do what I did to that poor Dutch woman in the front row of my show when she did not do the right call response. And I didn't realize she wasn't understanding what I was saying. I think envy is too, is, was too specific. Um, I, it seems that people who perform produce especially strong reactions in the, in their, in the people who've seen them perform. Mm. I'm not there presenting the novel to you. Right. I'm lucky enough to be friends with several novelists and the fanaticism that comes around certain novelists is extreme because you're allowing those words to come inside your brain, inside your heart, be with you in your bed. Yeah. It's a whole other body of, of, strong feeling it's it's strong feeling that takes it it takes a different form yeah there are people who become fixated fixated fanatical um yes i I, mean people will become fanatical about anybody who's living their dream and living a, a realm of the um the imaginative life that is really accessible i believe to everyone but through some sort of confluence of you know, things they were taught when they were young or our birthright is to make, invent, create, renew, uh, imagine. I firmly believe that, especially watching my four-year-old boy play with anything and create a world out of it. Yeah, yeah. I know that your parents weren't artists. They weren't writers. Mm -hmm. Um, Though in reading the hours... The cake is an art, right? Yeah, the character in the hours was based, based off of your mother. Some some parts of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was having a hard time. There's a character I knew almost too well. Mm. And I was having a hard time tuning her in. Um, my mother was a perfectionist and beyond obsessive. Right. And I, I, really, I really think wife and mother was too was not a big enough job for her. It was so she 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 focused her energy so intensely on baking a cake that could banish sorrow and keeping a house so clean, the germs didn't even bother to come in anymore. And um, as I was working on that book, which involves a character like my mother and Virginia Woolf, mm-hmm. I one day thought, you know, let's take my mother and Virginia Woolf. Um, 
let's remove the end result of their efforts. One of them wrote great enduring literature. The other was so driven that she would throw away a cake that didn't turn out and bake another one. If you take that away, book and cake gone, and just stay with the two people and their desire to create something greater than any human being can technically create. My mother can be right there in the book with Virginia Woolf. She's not lesser just because it was about cakes and not about books. It was, a, it was fundamentally about that desire to transcend yourself. Right. You know, praise to anyone who does that. Most of the writers I know are not writing at all right now. But a lot of us are finding that it's slightly counterintuitive, but this actual reality unfolding before us right now is so convincing that it's hard to leave it and enter that other, the aforementioned parallel reality of your book. Mm. You would think you would want nothing more than to dive into that parallel reality, but actually that door is hard to open in the mornings. Because how could you create a world that is... Yeah. more clever or f or interesting it is, fantastic it is, it is than more dramatic and shocking and and yes. full of heroism and evil and everything you hope for in a novel how can you possibly come within miles of matching this right and we do it anyways yes i do feel like the greater consciousness and clarity i mean obviously i've always felt like interested in social justice, always been uh, and lucky enough to be raised by parents that were on that side. But that this moment more than ever is truly learning how to listen, how to shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. And then also what I can do to amplify melanated voices, what I can do to read the work of more Black voices voices of color, what I, what, what can I do to support more? You take the steps of, okay, I believe the climate change is real. That's great. Is it going to actually make me change my buying patterns? Because you can believe something's real all you want, but mm -hmm. if you don't actually let it infuse your life, then it's just empty ethics. Yeah. I want to ask you about teaching. What is it like to teach young people right now? Because there, there are certain things that, I mean, it's a very exciting time to work with young people right now, but there's other things that would really frighten me, like the trigger warning button being so easy to push. How do you talk about appropriation and lack of attention spans? I guess I just, I want to ask you about teaching. You know, I have been really fortunate. I, I teach two classes at Yale. One is a creative writing class and one is a literature class with a big element of writing. Um, certainly for the literature class, um, I try to make the syllabus as diverse as possible. Mm. Um, I try to encourage the students to feel free to raise 
questions about anything from appropriation to what, in my case, is unconscious instances of racism or misogyny in one of the stories we've read. I hope that they will feel very free to bring that up. Something like trigger warnings, I say, look, um, I wouldn't want to presume to know what might be, I don't even know what to warn you about. So let's say this, at the start of the semester, if there are any specific issues, events, if there are things that are difficult for you to read about, email me privately. We should talk about it privately. Mm. I don't want people to feel silenced. Last year, a a student pointed out um, a sort of racist line in a story I've been teaching for Mm. years. What was the story, may I ask? Dennis Johnson's story, I love Dennis Johnson, called Work. Uh, I can tell you about it. Um, It's about these two very feckless guys who make a little extra money and and promptly go to a bar to drink it all away. And one of them almost gets into a fight with, um, now I can't believe that I missed this, but I did, um, the biggest, blackest man in Iowa. And one of the students said, I just have to say, all the other characters are presumed assumed to be white. You know, I understand that this man's bigness and blackness is being sort of brought in to illustrate how very threatening he is to some tiny little little white guy in Iowa. But, and you know, all I could think to say was, "You're right." Mm. And I this has gotten by me more than once, and. Why don't we go out for drinks after class and talk about it? Which is what we did. And that's that's the best I know to do. Yes. To encourage the conversation, include it, and be open to the idea that you don't know everything. To not get defensive. You know, you're right. Fuck me. And we can talk about this. Um, and, you know, so far so good. <laughs> that's... Great. I, I mean, I, I do think these are conversations we can you can have. Not always, but what the fuck? Try to have the conversation because what else? You, you know, there you are. There you are having assigned that story to your class. Beyond, let's talk about it. I don't know what else to do. Yes. One of the huge reasons that we're here, and it's baffling to me, is that there are so many white people who have for so many years seen mm-hmm. being racist as the worst thing that they're so caught in the loop of defensiveness of I am not racist, but I am not racist that they cannot see that they are benefiting off of a racist system. That's one of the big ones for us white people now. It, it, it is that I'm, yeah. I'm one of the good white people. I'm not, I'm not one of those other white yeah. people. Yes. And, and then also just being able to, I had to apologize to someone the other day. I had said something that I felt was innocuous, but I sat with it and I was like, well, that was said off of the comfort of me living a life where I am not constantly other because I am cis. I am queer, but I'm hetero passing for sure. And I am a woman. Do you sometimes thank the lucky stars that you're a gay man? So at least you have some understanding (laughs) and do a little bit of oppression. Not that you can claim victim ground because that's a danger that I think happens a lot is the victim wars. 
it's tricky trying to to compare your sense of marginalization to other people's experience of marginalization. It's so complicated and it feels like we don't automatically have language for a lot of this. Yeah, I, I, this is different entirely. Um, I'm much, in terms of the teaching, um, doing it online is a whole other, that that is what I'm most concerned about right now. Like we have to really- oh my, Are you going to be asked to do that? I don't teach until January, but I don't feel confident that I'll be in the classroom by January. And, you know, um, I guess I feel like the kind of conversations we're talking about, whether it's about race or gender identity, have been easier to have in live air. Absolutely. And I'm anticipating, with a certain appropriate nervousness, um, doing this with groups, even with students who I care about, um, there's like a millimeter of dead air that you have to get through. Mm. You know, not with you, but with a group. I just feel like it's a new way of speaking to people. Absolutely. With a gr- I can't handle group Zooms. It's really, really hard for me. It's unnatural, the timing. I think the latency, I've really resisted to performing also um, to a computer screen. Though I know I, I will have to and I, and I will continue to. Um, yeah. But yes, you and I are some the two people that really thrive off of that human meat space, the meat space, as Nicholas Negroponte put it. Yeah, no, I mean, almost literally shared molecule, the, the shift and the hum and the smell of other people is barely registered. But for teaching, I really depend on that. And um, I mean, we did the last four weeks of my classes on Zoom and it, it, it wasn't easy. No. I don't imagine it. It's not what you signed up for. It's not what anyone signed yeah. up for, of course. We're going to have to find a way to do yes. it. Yes, and it's a relatively small sacrifice when we think about our past relatives that have had to deal with we- world wars. and. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. Yeah. No, but, but I, mean, I, I, I do think it speaks to the somewhat larger question of, of conversations you can have, difficult conversations you can have, and... Um, how not being in the room together may render them that much more difficult. Mm. Absolutely. Especially about difficult conversations about gender and race. Yes. That's that's what I, more more than just, you know, how my class is going to go. There's also this question that I think applies to all kinds of us about, is this going to make it harder for us to talk about slightly tricky subjects? Yeah. When I think about, say me apologizing to this friend who is a black woman, if I had had to do that apology over Zoom, I don't think I would have done it. Right. My point is that. Because there's something, there's a, what is it? Is it the forgivable nature of molecules? (laughs) I think we're missing a lot of sensory information. Yeah. Like you are a living, breathing person. And so just my empathy is turned on. Mm-hmm. Just by smelling your pheromones, perhaps. Yeah, no, I, th- I think we're miss- we're missing the pheromones. There is um, an element of intentionality mm, that is lost. Um, yeah, it's different to say, "Oh, hey, by the way, I want to talk to you about this," because we're here. But you know, we have to mutate for this. Cheers! Cheers to healthy mutation. Cheers to <laughs> Chink. <laughs> And we can't clink. We can't even clink, I know.
Okay, I want to play a quick game. The game is, I'm going to say a word, and then I know that you have a lot of songs that you carry around with you. Um, Top of your mind, any line of poetry or a song that has this word in it, okay? And you can sing it or say it. Word association. Are you game? Yeah, Okay, here we go. (laughs) Wild. Wild, born to be wild. Yes, born yeah. to be. Get your oh. motor running. Hit out on the highway. <laughs> Looking for adventure. Oh, whatever comes my. I sang that song senior year at our senior year party. Oh. Oh, and I got wow. up on a table. I think it was like the birthplace, really, of some spirit of Lady Rizzo, now Rizzo, is. Yeah. That song came on. I got up on a table. The realities of caring about what anyone thought of me were gone. I stood up on a table. I, that song was in the background. And I, I gave it my full thing. The legs of the table collapsed under me. Oh. Oh. I kept on performing as it toppled yeah. to the side and all of the things started hitting me. That was, I think, a first moment of me being like, True brilliance in performance is the lack of caring about any disasters and the ability to continue through disaster. Yes, yes. Oh, okay. That was important to both of us, clearly. (laughs) Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. Um, Hey, that's no way to say goodbye. Left you in the morning, our kisses deep and warm, your head upon the pillow, like a sleepy golden storm, etc. etc. Keep 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 going because I love the words of that so much, but you know well, all the words, I don't know. Your love stays with me, it's just the way it changes, like the shoreline meets the sea, but let's not talk of love a change. They can't untie your eyes are soft with sorrow. Hey, that's no way to say goodbye. Uh, oh God, that song makes me cry. Uh, uh, you know how you spoke about you spoke about Virginia Woolf mm. and and um the moment of of that of the, that could be Bach for someone else of the the unfair furling of that particular kind of genius i experienced that first with leonard cohen listening to my parents my parents had like an essential leonard cohen album and i put it on and i was i just heard the poetry i just heard poetry in a way i'd never heard it before that's so funny i was probably 12 and it was the first adult music i ever heard you know like frank sinatra but but I've been listening to pop, and suddenly I had an older friend who played Leonard Cohen. I thought, fuck, a little like reading Virginia Woolf for the first time. I didn't know you could do this. I didn't know you could create a world in five syllables. Yeah, and that just his voice and the gravitas and everything. Wow, what do you know? Yeah, Probably why it's the Leonard Cohen has, has wed us together. And this, many other things.
too sharp a sun to nourish thinking of him. you it was so exciting to see your books translated in so many different languages and one of my just favorite things in life being a traveler of many different countries and cultures and experiencing the friction of language and the barriers is when certain things just don't translate and i and i just wanted to ask you about the intimacy of that relationship with a translator and if there's any stories that you have of particular sentences or books or titles my last novel called the snow queen um involves a conversation between these two people and one of them says to the other or we could just drive out into the mad american night which is from Jack Kerouac on the road. But even as an American reader, even if you don't know who Jack Kerouac is and have never read that book, I assume you know what the phrase means. It's that American romance of just sort of emptying out your bank account, getting in your third-hand car and driving to the horizon out into the mad American night. Leave your life behind go out into the Man American night and start a new one. And my Finnish translator. <laughs> I love the Finns. That, and I thought, you know what? I bet you can't really drive out into the mad Finnish night. And if you did, it would read not as a gesture of reckless optimism, but as a gesture of despair. You know, you would just be driving out into into birch forest until you fell into this into the ocean. Just into the sea. Also, like the Finnish sensibility is already so dark. Not some of the words don't translate, but sort of more interestingly, some of the concepts, the references don't translate. That there there was clearly nothing in the Finnish imagination of, that involved 
a vast continent full of unrealized possibilities. That's not a finished thing. And I, all I could say was, oh, honey, do the best you can with it. <laughs> oh, I heard a thing about the Finns because they've done quite a good job at, mm-hmm. of course, of social distancing. And when the, the uh, three meter restrictions were released, someone said on a radio program, well, good, we can return to our usual 10-meter distance. (laughs) (laughs) I used to pretend I was Finnish. I had a train ride that I would occasionally take from Seattle where I went to uh, undergrad college and my home in Oregon. And I used to pretend I was Finnish often because it's the likelihood that someone speaks Finnish is very low and I had known a Finnish girl and so I was able to like do this kind of it's like this halfway between German and halfway between Russian I, this no and now I'm getting this on tape and so many Finns will be very upset but I got a lot of um free soft drinks from Americans who are interested in my country you are the um godfather of my child and therefore the spiritual advisor and um, so I'm wondering if you have a little bit of spiritual advice for a four-year-old going through the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Um, I feel like I want to say, Tennyson, be sure to call me when you have some spiritual advice for me. You're, you're four. I'm looking to you. That's beautiful. I love you. I love you too. Michael Cunningham's latest offering is The Wild Swan and Other Tales, a twist on fairy tales for a more sober time. It's delicious, has incredible illustrations by Yuko Shimizu, and can easily be read in one sitting. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Yair Evnine. I am Rizzo with one Z, and you've been listening to Baptized in Glitter. Baptized in Glitter was produced by Debs Baird, Ben Jonas, with additional support by Erica Henderson, Mackenzie Webster, and Nicholas Raymond. This would not have been possible without the supports of my patrons on Patreon. If you've liked what you've heard, please come over and join our little family at patreon.com slash love. Thanks for listening. I hunger for distance When I feel those ropes The tug of your heart Strangles all Voracious for speed When I feel that need Excited, salacious But I'm always gracious When I leave you There on your knees